you guys can have a seat, and uh, we're going to get this thing rolling. Uh, this morning, we're going to be basically in Matthew. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing a series that we've been in for just a little while about prayer and what prayer is all about. Uh, as I was studying about prayer this week, I, I read a story a guy uh, told, and it reminded me of, of an event in my life. I remember when Janet and I first met, um, and I would drive to, uh, to Lake Charles from Houston to visit her, and we were dating long distance, and I remember uh, spending some time at her house and sitting in her living room, and and uh, man, we're just kind of chilling, and all of a sudden, it sounds like a train is coming through the living room. Half a block away from Janet's house ran the, the train tracks through Lake Charles, and when those trains hit those different interpasses and intersections, they would always have to blow their horn and and dude, it felt like that train was coming through the living room. I mean, it just felt like and Janet and them didn't flinch. They're just like, oh, and I'm like, what is that noise? And they're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, what? It sounds like a train. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's a train. Yeah. And they had gotten so accustomed to it that they didn't even realize, they didn't even hear it anymore. But it was for me, as, as a person who didn't live near the tracks, it sounded like this train is just going to make its way right through their living room. And yet for them, they were just kind of oblivious to the sound because they had lived there for so many years. They just got used to it. Sometimes when we come to familiar passages of Scripture, it's like living in a living room that a train passes by every day, and it blows its horn, and you hear it, and you go, oh, train, okay? And today is going to be one of those passages like that. We're going to look at this passage that many of you have recited at the middle of a football field after a game, Our Father, which art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, you know, and, and we, we, we got to where we, I remember as a, as a little kid, my dad coaching football, and one of the joys was after the game, we got to go on the field. And, and, and after the, every game, the kids gathered at the center of the field, and they said this prayer. And I learned this passage of scripture on a football field after football games. And it has stuck with me all of my life. But sometimes passages get so familiar that we just rattle them off the end of our tongue, and we never stop to think, what those passages mean. When Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. It's a, it's a gathering where folks have gathered around a mountainside with him and they, they've sat down to listen to Jesus teach. And he's giving them all kinds of principles about how to build their lives and the attitudes of their heart and all kinds of things. And then he gets to this section where he begins to talk about them doing their religious acts. And, and uh, today we're going to look at a passage that talks about prayer. But, but he really starts this passage in, in, in verse 1 where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he starts this passage. He's going to talk about, about giving and about praying and about fasting. And before he gets to those three topics, he says, Listen, be careful that, that, that you don't practice your righteousness in front of others just to be seen by them. Because if you practice your righteousness to be seen by them, you're not going to have any reward, no benefit from your Father in heaven. So Jesus starts this passage by reminding us to examine our hearts and why we do what we do. Especially as Jesus moves into the area of prayer, he's going to remind us that, that we don't pray to impress people. We don't pray to be heard by man. We pray to be heard by God. And yet there were those in Jesus' day, he calls them hypocrites, who, who, who would love to stand in the synagogues and pray these lofty prayers. They would love to stand on the street corners and, and, and they would take heralds with them that would blow trumpets and get everybody's attention. And they're going to like, Brother Rob is about to pray to get everybody's attention, to hear how godly I was by the way that I prayed. 
So Jesus is going to start this passage, this discussion of prayer by warning us to stop and examine our motives. Why do we pray? Do we pray for people to, to hear us? Do we pray because it was just something that we were taught that you got to do before a meal? And so I, I can remember growing up in a home where as we said the blessing every night at our family meal, it was the same word that seemed like every single night. My dad would lead the prayer, but, but I can almost from memory recite what dad would say at every prayer because it was, it was what dad was comfortable with, and that's what dad would say. And I was glad that he was praying, but, but looking back on that, I'm going, you know, we just said the same thing every night. And Jesus is going to talk about that as well. So as we dive into this passage today in Matthew chapter 6, it's a, a warning to examine why we do what we do in prayer. To, to, to examine our motives for why we're praying and who we're praying to and, 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 and kind of how we do our methods. And, and is it a formula that you're trying to come up with to get God to listen? I can remember as a, as a high school student, I became a believer in Christ, began to follow Christ. I'm in church and, and I would collect the offering. And back then it was a real formal type church where you had this, this, this thing at the end and everybody would, would come to the front and all of us that were gathering the, altar, uh, gathering the offering would gather at the altar and the preacher would always call on one of us to pray. And I remember going up there, and, and my brand new believer, and I'm, I'm, I'm going, oh, God, I hope he didn't call on me. I hope he didn't call on me. I hope he didn't call on me. And he calls on me. You know, and you're like, oh, what do I say? And all I knew to say was what I'd heard the other men saying in the, in the prayers, you know. And I would try to repeat what they would say so that I would sound intelligent or I would sound like I had this deep walk with God like some of those men pretended to have. And, and, and sometimes we take the, the words that we've heard others say and we think, oh, that's a nice phrase. I'm going to bring that into my prayer life and that's going to impress God and make him go, ooh, look at Rob, you know. And we can do all these different things and miss really praying from the heart. Remembering that it's a conversation with God, it's not a show. And so as he talks about prayer today, and as we begin to, to look at this passage in chapter 6, we're reminded that we've really got to be careful He's going to talk about praying in private, and then he's going to shift in, in talking about corporate prayers. So he's going to cover both of those. And some will read the first part and say, see, we should never pray out loud in church. Because he says to go in your closet, shut the door, and, and pray in secret. But then he changes the language in chapter 6 to a plural. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. And it goes to this plural, this, this, this community that we are a part of in prayer. And so even in this one passage, we see a, a declaration about private prayer and a, a declaration about uh, a community prayer, a, a corporate prayer together. And so we're going to see that it's not an exclusion of one or the other, but, but there's, there's, there's things that Jesus says about both of these types of prayers that we need to, to, to listen to. So let's kind of dive in and look. And we're going to be uh, in verses 5 through 15. It's Matthew chapter 6. Uh, and let's just kind of look through this and, and see some of the principles here that Jesus is going to, to point out. So he's warned us to, to make sure that when we're praying, we're not praying to be seen by men or to be heard by men. And then he comes back in verse 5 and he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You all remember what a hypocrite is? In, in, in Rome and in, in, the, in the theaters of Rome, they didn't have enough actors to act out all the parts on stage. And so they would have an actor who would come on stage and he would have a mask that he would wear for one part with another mask behind his, his back. And he would act out this one person's part and then he would switch masks and play a second role. And, and, and he was two-faced. That's what it means to be a hypocrite, to be two-faced. He had, he had two different masks that he would put on. 
we do that sometimes. We have a church mask, and then we have the rest of the week mask. We have a work mask, and we have a home mask. We, we, we are two-faced in a lot of ways. We say one thing, but we actually are something different. And so he says, don't be a hypocrite when it comes to prayer. Don't, don't get before God and be playing two different roles. Don't, don't try to look holy if you don't have a desire to be holy. And you realize there's a big difference between looking holy and being holy, right? Looking holy is external. I just want to look the role. Which means your basic desire at that level is, let's just don't get caught doing something I know I shouldn't do. Looking holy, external, don't get caught. Pretend. Being holy, internal, from the heart. Saying, I don't want to be that person. I, I don't want to be looking for loopholes. I don't want to be looking for a, a, a little escape route. I want to be at my core more like Jesus. So he starts by saying, look, don't you be a hypocrite. Do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and to pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Here's their motives. So that they may be seen by others. If your motive in praying is to be seen or to be heard by others, then who are you praying to? Not God. We can do great things with the wrong motives, and it empties it of its value. And here he's saying, look, if, if you are a great prayer warrior, but the only time you want to pray is when somebody else is watching or somebody else is listening, that's a hypocrite. If the only time, listen, if the only time, guys, that you bow your heart and your head and your mind before the Lord to pray is when somebody else is gathered around you, do you really have a heart for prayer? Prayer ought to be something that's in our heart all the time. It ought to be something that, that just needs to, to, to make its way out. Their motives were that they could be seen by others. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They wanted man's attention, they got man's attention, and that's it. Nothing from God. It's, it's, it's the hypocrite that, that wanted to look and sound holy, but not be holy. They, he says here, don't be a pretender in God's presence. Don't, don't pray to impress people. Don't pray to be seen and heard by man, but pray to be seen and heard by God. Because if you're after man's attention, you're not going to get God's attention. So he warns us here, look at your motives of why you pray. So that's the negative. Don't you be like that. Here's the positive. But when you do pray, go into your room. Okay? The, the room, the, the privacy, if you will, versus the public synagogue, the public street corners. Get alone with God, he says. Go into your room. Shut the door. You get this idea of, 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 of it's going to be in private. It's not going to be pretending. If I'm in a room and it's just me and God, who's there to fool, right? If I'm in a room and, and nobody else is there and nobody else knows what's going on and it's just me and God talking and God knows everything about me, he knows the words that are going to proceed from my lips long before they hit my tongue. Who am I fooling, right? So when I get alone, when I get in, in a room, I, I shut the door. It's just me and God, and there's no need to pretend. 
There's no need to, to try to impress. It's just me and him. And he says, when you, when you get there, so, so in private, don't pretend. He says, and pray to your father. This prayer is a father-focused prayer. Your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret. He sees deep within. He sees below the surface. He sees behind the mask, if you will. He searches our hearts and knows our real motives. He will reward you. Guess what the biggest reward in prayer is? Any idea? Is it that new car? Bigger house? That raise that you've been wanting? Is that really the reward of prayer? It's not the best reward. The best reward of prayer is God himself. When we get alone and we stop pretending and we can just be real before God, realizing that he is my father, Can, can we, I, I can't get my arms all the way around that. But can we really begin to, 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 to fathom the fact that the God that holds the world in his hands is the father who can rock me to sleep at night? Can we really grasp how great it is to have God as our father? And he says, so you pray to your father. And he will reward you. He rewards you with himself, guys. And then he talks about our methods. He says, and when you pray, don't, don't, keep, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The, the, the New International Version says, don't keep on babbling on and on like the pagans do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. As I read this passage, I think back to to the Old Testament, the story of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Y'all remember that story? It's in 1 Kings chapter 18. And, and in that story, in, in 1 Kings, he, he, he reminds the, uh, we're reminded of, of these, these pagan gods, these prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal who Elijah summoned to come to the mountain. And y'all remember the story, don't you? It, it was where the, they, the, the people were tempted to follow the gods of Baal. And Elijah needed to demonstrate to them that there was only one real God. So he invites all the people, he invites the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 other prophets to come. And, and y'all remember he built the altar and he said to, to the people of, 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 the, of Baal, the, the Baal worshipers, build your altar, I'll build mine, and we'll call for fire from heaven and we'll see whose God is real. And when we think about their, their story, if you, if you got your, your Bibles, or I think we'll have it on the screen for you, but, but look at this, this is what it says. So the prophets of Baal, they, they took this bull that was given to them and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. And no one answered. And so they danced, look at this. And, and they danced around the altar. Here's their methods, okay? If we shout for the God and he doesn't respond, then we're going to dance for the God and maybe he'll respond. And at noon, Elijah begins to taunt them. And he says, well, shout louder. Surely he's the God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or he's busy or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and you must awaken him. Look at this. So they shouted louder. And they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. They are showing him how sincere they are. They're screaming, they're shouting, they're dancing, they're doing everything they can to get their God's attention. And midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. 
No one answered. And listen to this. No one paid attention. Now, i got to be honest with you. There's been times in my life where I've prayed. And, and, and I felt a little bit of that, to be honest with you. But looking back on those times, I think my prayers were whacked. My motives were not right. My sin was not confessed. My heart was not pure. And, and that does happen when we are in relationship with God and, and we're, we're, we're not right with God. But here's these prophets of Baal. I mean, they're doing everything they can to get their God's attention. And it says here that, that no one paid attention. No one heard their cry. The rest of the story was simple. Elijah finally, after they wear themselves out, Elijah steps up, he builds the altar, places the wood on it, places the animal on it, and he asks the folks to go get four huge jars of water and come. They dug a trench around uh, Elijah's altar, and they soaked that offering, soaked the wood. Did it again and again, three times, until the water was so, the wood was so saturated that the water ran off in the trench that they dug around it. And then Elijah just steps up and says, God, show these people who God is. Show them who you are, God. And the Bible says that God sent fire from heaven, and it consumed the wood, it consumed the animal, it consumed the stones, and it licked up every bit of water out of that trench. And that day the people knew who God was. Jesus says when you're praying, don't be like the lost world who thinks you've got to dance and shout and get God's attention and, and you've got to beat yourself up and you've got to cut yourself until the blood's flowing. And, and, and sometimes in prayer, guys, that's what we do. We come to God, God, I'm so horrible, I'm so terrible, I feel so... And we feel like that we've got to beat ourselves up in God's presence to get God's forgiveness. But here's the truth. Your beating has already been taken by Jesus on the cross. Your shame was experienced by Jesus on the cross. The blood that you would, would shed like these guys shed their blood in front of their God was already shed by Jesus on the cross. There's nothing left for us to do but just to come and to admit that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That, that we have fallen short and we need his forgiveness. That, that, that like David said in the song we read this morning, that, that when my heart got quiet and I refused to confess, it just dried up, my bones dried up within me. But when I confessed, I experienced his forgiveness, I experienced the joy, I, I felt his hand lifted from me. Everything changed when I confessed my sin. And he says, when we come before the Lord and we, we pray before him, don't just look for these empty phrases or these catchphrases or these cliches. Don't just keep babbling like the lost world. You don't need the right words. You don't need a fancy phrase. You just need a heart that's seeking after God. He says, don't be like them. Verse 8. For your father, look at this, your father knows what you need. Can, can I rephrase that just a little bit? Your Father knows what is best. We don't come to God to convince Him to give us something good. We don't come to God to convince Him to give us something better. God already knows what we need. He knows what's perfect and what's best for us. He already knows that before we ever ask Him. 
Prayer is not coming to God to convince him to do something that he doesn't want to do. It's not coming to God and trying to manipulate him in order to get him to twist his arm to make him do something that, that he's reluctant to do. Scripture says if our earthly fathers who are evil know how to give good gifts to us, how much more so does our heavenly father? Prayer is not a, a rambling, it's not a magic formula. God's not a cosmic vending machine. If you get the right formula and you put it in there, then boom, out, out comes the thing that you want. That's not God. That's a false God like the prophets of Baal were worshiping. And so he says, don't be like them. You've got a father, a father who loves you and who knows what's best for you even before you ask him. So prayer is our way to express our desire for God and our dependency upon God. It, it's about building a foundation of trust in Him that He knows what's best, that He's willing and ready to give those things to Him to us if we will just ask. He's our Father, and He knows and desires to do what is best for us. So then how do we pray? Jesus answers that in the next verse. He says, so, pray then like this. He doesn't say this is a formula that you and I are to, to, to mindlessly repeat, as we did on the football field for years. But this is how you pray. Pray like this. this is, these are the elements of, of prayer that, that ought to be on our lips as we come before the Father. And, and look at how he changes now from praying in secret coming and praying with the mind that we are a part of something greater than ourselves. He starts with the first word, our. It's plural. It's not singular. It's not selfish. It's not just about me. Y'all can learn a lot about me. You probably wish you didn't know, but I remember when I used to play baseball or sports and football, I always prayed that God would let my team win. And then one day it hit me, there's probably Christians on that other team that are praying the same thing. So which one of us is God's favorite? I mean, God can't answer both of those prayers, can he? You know, and, 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 and my prayer became just about me. Lord, I want my team to win. I, I, when I get up there to bat, Lord, I don't want to strike out again. I want to, I want to get a base hitter. I want to, I, I just want to contribute. I want to do something good that everybody would cheer for me, God. God never seemed to hear that prayer, by the way. I wouldn't have stood like Dalton, you know, I just didn't have that man. Do your prayers ever turn inward and just become self-absorbed? God, this is about me. He starts his prayer by saying he's our father. Guys, what that means is this, that the God that, that I pray to is the same God that Jesus bowed before the same God that Peter and Paul and the apostles prayed to, the same God that, that, that sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, it's the same God that, that all believers for all times have prayed to. He's, he's our Father, all of us. And, and not just the, the ones of us gathered here at Crossroads, but the ones that are gathered across town and across the world. Those who are praying to the one true God, He is our God. We need to, to remember how big God is and how He's not just ours. So he's our, us together. All believers of all times. He's Father, our Father. Do you know why you get to call him Father? 
Do you know what made that possible? For you to call God Father? We, we could stop right here this morning and have every reason in the world to break out in praise and in glory and in adoration for God. Because just the fact that I get to call him Father speaks all about the cross and all about Jesus and all about that sacrifice and all about everything that he went through on my behalf to give me the privilege of calling him Father. Do you realize that before the cross, the Pharisees and the religious leaders thought it was just heresy to be able to speak of God as Father? When Jesus spoke of God as Father, they were nailing to the cross. You're calling him your Father? Would that make you a son? Jesus goes, ah, you're getting it. And they wanted to nail him to the cross for referring to God as Father. And Jesus says, you and I get to come before God and use those terms. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. The only way that you and I can call him Father is because of what Jesus did. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to what? The Father except through me, through Jesus. So the fact that you and I even get to call him Father has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus and what Jesus did to make that possible. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and he breathed his last breath? What happened to the, the veil in the temple? Y'all remember? Split from top to bottom, giving us access into that holy place with God. The New Testament says now we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can, we can draw near with confidence and with boldness in the presence of God. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us. Listen, when we read these, these, these prayers and we read this, he's saying when you're praying, you need to realize what a privilege it is just to call God Father. Don't just mouth the word, but, but let it sink into your mind what, what a privilege you have. Listen, when we're praying, this is, the, this is kind of a model. But when we get before the Lord and we get quiet before God, we realize that we're not the only one. We realize that we have a Father because of what Jesus did. That ought, to, that ought to lead to praise and adoration and thanksgiving in our hearts because of what Jesus did for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, he is so far above us, and yet he lives within us. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms. If it was not so, I would tell you, he says, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, what? There you can be also. He wants us in his presence. He is a God that, yes, reigns in heaven. He's also a God who wants to reign in me and in you. He's our Father above all. Hallowed be thy name. Holy be your name. So let me ask you a question. Can you and I add to the holiness of God? There's nothing I can do to make God more holy, right? But I can live in such a way as to defame his name that he's placed upon me. I can live in such a way as to bring dishonor to that holy name. And when he says, hallowed be your name, I think what he's trying to say here is, Lord, help me to live in a way that honors that holy name. Let me live in such a way that as I represent you in my world this week, as I represent you when I go to work tomorrow, as I represent you in, in my business dealings and all the things that I do, Lord, as I represent you, let me represent you in such a way that I bring honor to that holy name so that I live in a way that hallows, that, 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 that reflects the holiness of who you are. 
My desire, Lord, needs to be to honor your name, to represent you well. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Those two phrases just roll off the tips of our tongues. What is he saying? He says, Lord, I want your kingdom here and, and now. I want to learn to submit to you fully right now. I want your kingdom rule to be over my heart right now. I want you to reign supreme. I want my desires to line up with your desires. I want you to reign completely in every area of my life. Nothing hidden, no secret corners, no secret sins. I want it all to come before you. And God, I want your kingdom to come in me. But again, this is a prayer not just about me. But God, I desire for your kingdom to come worldwide. For those who haven't heard the name of God have the privilege of hearing the name of God. For those who haven't bowed their knee before you and confessed you as their Lord and their Savior, to have that opportunity to come to salvation in you. Lord, I want your kingdom here and now, and I want it for this world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. This expression, your will be done, guys, is, is probably the most blunt expression of trust in God. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's arrested, Remember, he goes to the Father and says, Lord, if there's any way that this cup can pass and I don't have to, to go to the cross, if there's any other way, Lord, that we can do this, then, then, then let's do that. But nevertheless, not my will, God, but your will be done. You know what Jesus is saying? Father, I trust you completely. There ought to be an element in our prayer, guys, that we come before God that says, God, you know what? Here's what my flesh wants. Here's what I would really like. Here's the thing that I've been dreaming of. But God, you know what? At the end of the day, what I want more than any of that is I want you. And I want your will done in my life. Why? Because I trust you. I trust that you are good. That you do good. And that your will is good. Lord, I, I trust God that you know more than I know. That you see more than I see. And that you can do more than I could ever do. So God, when I say your will be done, what I'm saying is I trust you, God. I trust you. Some people say that when we go to the hospital and somebody's sick and we pray and we say, Lord, we just want your will to be done, that that's a cop-out, that's a lack of faith, that that's just, that's just a, 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 an exit strategy to get out of a room without asking too much of God. I think it's just the opposite. I think when we can go into a hospital room or we can go into a, 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 a hospice room or we can go anywhere where there's a need and we can say to God, God, this is really what my heart's desire would be. But God, more than anything, I want your will done. That's the greatest statement of faith and trust that we can make. More than telling God what he needs to do to say to God, Lord, I trust that you know best. Your will, not mine. Your ways, not mine. Your thoughts, not my thoughts. Lord, I want you more than I want me. So I trust you. That is faith. Faith is not telling God what to do. Faith is trusting that God will do what's best in every situation, every single time. Some folks will say, well, this is just kind of a, a passive resignation to fate. Whatever will be, will be. This is not a passive resignation to fate, to fate. This is active obedience. It's, it's active desire and trust in, in God above all else. Thy will be done. And let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever thought about how God's will is carried out in heaven? 
You ever stop and really think about it? I mean, we say this phrase. What's he saying? Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Perfectly. Completely. Immediately. When God speaks, the angels move. When God speaks, things change and things happen immediately, completely, faithfully. God, I want your will done in my life completely. I want your will done in my life immediately. God, I want your will done in my life to, to the utmost degree. That's what we're saying. I don't just want your will done when it's fun. I don't just want your will done when it lines up with my will. I don't want your will done just when I sign off and say, okay, this is cool. I'll take this and I'll leave that. I want your will done in my life exactly the way it's going to be done when I get to heaven. Completely. Immediately. Uh, uh, joyfully. It's my desire to do your will. Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now he's moving from praising God, asking for God to capture our hearts, to, to asking God, Lord, help me to trust you more. Lord, I want to trust you. Your will be done. But Lord, help me to trust you even more in, in, in the everyday stuff of life. It's an expression of total dependency upon God. Lord, teach me to trust you daily. Some of you are, are, are wise people and you have worked out this 20-year this plan of how you want your career or your business to go and when you can finally retire and what it's going to be like and all these neat things that, that you've got planned out. And, and, and you know what? And, and, and much of that's been blessed for some of you and you have, you have excelled. But sometimes when we excel, we forget to trust God. I've got enough money to last me the next 50 years. And we put our trust in that money and not in God. In Proverbs chapter 30, listen to what the writer of Proverbs says. Chapter 30, verses 7, 8, and 9. He says this. He says, two things I ask of you, God. Two things. Deny them not to me before I die. In other words, Lord, let these things be. Remove far from me falsehoods and lying. But then listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And here's his reason. God, don't give me poverty and God, don't give me riches. Why? It says verse 9. You give me riches, God... I might get full and deny that I need you. And then say, who is the Lord? I'm a self-made man. Or if you give me poverty, I might steal and profane the name of my God. Either extreme does not honor you. So God, just give me what I need today. Just give me what I need today. And let me trust you with tomorrow. Most of us want God to give us everything right now. God, if you would just give me enough for the next 30 years, I wouldn't have to worry. And God says, you don't have to worry if I just give you today. Because if I can take care of today, I can take care of tomorrow. 
And when I take care of tomorrow, I can take care of the next day. And it's that principle that we learn by reading in the Old Testament the story of God providing manna for the people every single day. Why didn't God give them a week's supply at a time? Because he wanted them to learn to trust him every single day. Give us this day the manna that we need for today. Because God, if you give me too much, I'll grow prideful and think it's all about me. And say, who needs God? God, if you don't come through, I'm going to be tempted to steal and cheat and lie and dishonor your name. Jesus says, when we pray, pray, say, Lord, give us this day. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those that are our debtors. Forgiveness, guys, is tough. You notice how this prayer is progressing and it's getting a little more difficult as it goes. God, forgive us for our debts against you. Remember when David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned? David knew he'd sinned against Bathsheba. He knew he had sinned, sinned against her husband Uriah. But he knew at the heart and the core of every, every sin is the sin against God. I didn't trust you, God. I didn't obey you, God. I didn't follow you, God. Just forgive us our debts against the Father. God, forgive us for not loving you more, for not trusting you completely as we're asking you to help us to do. Lord, forgive us for turning your blessings into idols that we worship and, 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 and worshiping the created versus the creator. God, forgive us for those things. Cancel our debts and forgive our sins and purify us and transform our hearts. And here's the confession, God. We confess to you that, that we are far from what you desire for us to be which is a simple reminder that we need Jesus even more. But God, as we ask you to forgive us, we know that we've got to forgive others as well. I can't expect you to forgive me, God, if I'm not willing to forgive those around us. And so, Father, forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. Now listen to this. Let me ask you this question. I want you to really think about this. If God measured out forgiveness in your life the way you measure it out to others, What would your spiritual condition be right now? If God used the same size shovel to pour forgiveness out in your life as you used to pour out on others' lives, what would your spiritual condition be? See, we're very quick to say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. We're very slow to offer that same forgiveness to other people. But the forgiveness and the grace that God pours out on us, listen, God, we are supposed to be a conduit of that grace, not a reservoir that just holds it. We are to be that pipe that it flows through into our lives, washing and cleansing us and straight on to others who have offended us and who have hurt us. We're foolish to think that we can have one without the other. They, they go together. Father, forgive us. In the same way that we're forgiving other people. This is assuming that we are forgiving others. Forgive us as we also have forgiven. Make us like you, God. As you've forgiven, teach us to forgive. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. Be, be careful you understand what, what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying God... Deliver me from trials, because trials teach us. And 
trials shape us. Trials build character. He's not saying, God, keep me from every kind of tribulation because those things build character and godliness in our lives. Here's what he's saying. God, do not lead me into temptation. The temptation to turn back to self-centeredness. The temptation, God, to turn back to self-sufficiency. The, the temptation to turn back to the idols that I used to have in my life. God, teach me not to, to go back to lesser things. God, guard me from that temptation to turn back and to turn away from you. God, guard me from the temptation to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. To act like I've got it all worked out and all figured out and all. God, protect me from trying to look holy. Instead, just let me focus on being holy. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations would say from the evil one. As I read this, I thought, Lord, my prayer would be this. Make me so God-centered. That no desire remains other than the desire for more of you. Set my desires on loving you to the point that no desire remains more than loving you. No other gods. And then Jesus closes this whole section on prayer by reminding us if you forgive others of their trespasses, your Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You cannot receive what you will not give. And, and here's what happens, guys. The more I understand my own need for God's grace and God's forgiveness, the more I realize the wickedness of my heart, the more I realize how much I need His grace and His forgiveness the easier it is for me to offer that same grace and forgiveness to others. Remember, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, the woman came in and she began to weep and to wash his feet with her tears and to, to, to wipe his feet with her, with her hair. And the Pharisees got all worked up that this sinful woman was touching Jesus. Remember that? And Jesus turned around and asked him a question. He said, look, if there's a guy who, who owes me a lot of money, and I forgive his debt, and the guy who owed me just a little bit of money, and I forgive his debt, which one's going to love me more? And they said, I guess the one that you forgave the greatest debt. And Jesus says, that's the point of this. He that has been forgiven much, loves much. Do you know why we don't extend grace more than we do? Because we've forgotten how much grace we needed from Jesus. The reason we don't offer forgiveness to others is we've forgotten how much God's already forgiven us. And Jesus reminds us, you're going to need the Father's forgiveness, so you better be quick to offer it to others. You're not through sinning, and you're not through failing, and you're going to need God's forgiveness because without that, your bones will dry up. Without that, you will wither, and you will, you will, you will just shrink to nothing on that vine. You're going to need His forgiveness, and if you're going to need it, you better be giving it. He that has been forgiven much loves much. And let me close by saying this. Unforgiveness in your life and in my life is a symptom of spiritual blindness.
Unforgiveness is a symptom of spiritual blindness to our own need for grace. Spiritual blindness to the magnitude of our own sin. And until I recognize the magnitude of my sin and my own need for God's grace, I'll be unable to offer that to other people. So if you find in your heart this spirit of unforgiveness, it's probably due to a spiritual blindness. And what you need for God to do is take you back and show you how much he's forgiven you. And here's what I found in my life. When I recognize how much God has forgiven me, all of a sudden what my neighbor did seems really, really small. Don't forget what it cost for you to be able to call him Father. Don't forget how much you need his grace every single day. Because if you don't have that front and center, you're not going to be gracious and you're not going to be forgiving. And you're going to lack that same forgiveness and grace that you need from the Father. So guys, this is a pattern for how we pray. Getting caught up in the fact that he is our Father. That he is in heaven. And yet he lives in us. That, that he wants us to, to make his name known, to, to represent him in a holy, godly way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In my life, Lord, I trust that you'll do what's best, that you want what's best. I don't have to dance and shout and cut myself and, and, and beat myself up for my sins. I just need to come before you and be honest and be real. Lord, you will forgive me and you will be my God and you will, you will place me back in the right relationship with you. If I'll just be honest. Jesus said, this is how we pray. Here's the real danger. We don't do those things in front of others. It's hard to be real with God in front of those that we're trying to impress. That's why Jesus says, go into your closet. And, and here's, here's the deal. Watch this. When prayer is real in the closet, then it can be real in public. But until it's real in the closet, that public thing is just a show. So he doesn't say don't pray out loud. He doesn't say don't pray in a group. He says start in the closet. And get it right there. And then you'll have something to pray about when we come together as a body. Does that make sense? Alright. We're going to pray. This altar is always open. If you feel the need to come and to talk with the Lord, you can talk to him right where you're at. But sometimes it's, it's nice to have a place you can just kind of go and close everything else out. After I pray, we're going to sing a couple songs. And guys, here's, here's what I want to encourage you. If, if God's hand is heavy upon you this morning, if there's something that God's dealing with in your heart and in your life right now, you may want to just not sing. And you may want to bow your head before God and deal with that. Because sometimes our singing can just be a cover-up for what God really wants to do. And here's one more piece of truth. Sometimes our singing is an abomination to God when our heart's not right. God, there's this thing you're dealing with me about, but I'm just going to raise my hands and worship you and pretend that's not there. And God goes, that worship is meaningless to me until you get your heart right. 
So while we sing, if you need to pray, you pray. And then you can sing with a clean heart and a pure heart. And you can watch God do a great work, okay? So let's pray together. God, right now, we just put this in your hands. We ask for your spirit to move as you see fit. You know each heart. You know each need. You know right where we're at with you right now, God. Some here that are walking with you closer than they've ever walked with you before. Others, God, that, that, that if they were honest with themselves and honest with you would say, I am so far from God, it's not even funny. <coughs> and right now, God, you call both and everybody in between to examine our hearts and get things right with you. So the times are refreshing can come. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for the grace and the mercy you pour out every moment of every day. Help us to be conduits of that grace to the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.